Hey, what's going on? It's Gino Ray, host of Native As I Can Be, Between Two Cultures. Welcome to this week's show, episode number nine. I'm going to be hanging out, uh, talking with Astrid Castro, and uh, going to be talking to her about adoption. November is Adoption Awareness Month, and she's got a very interesting um, adoption story. I won't get too much into it. I'll kind of let her tell it, but she's uh, originally from Colombia and was uh, adopted by a white family here in the States. And uh, uh, to say there was some uh, shenanigans and goings on is uh, really putting it mildly. Um, But it's a really fascinating story, and she works in adoption to this day and is going to be also telling us about a workshopping event she have she's having uh here in portland about uh kind of talking about what exactly adoption awareness month is so um that's what uh is on tap for uh this episode and then for the next couple weeks got some pretty pretty interesting things going on too i'm going to be talking with uh, a guy i met on the set of the librarians when i was on that tv show um another native guy and uh we're going to be uh, talking about kind of uh the differences between living on the res and off the res uh res by the way of course being short for reservation and uh i of course have never lived on a reservation and he has so uh we're going to be talking about that and just sort of the uh trials and tribulations of res life um and uh i'm sure like all native people uh he's got a good uh backstory as well so um that episode will be good um and then uh, going to be talking with Jeremy and Jane Fugel. Jeremy actually uh, moved to Thailand to meet Jane, sort of uh, sight unseen, you could say. But that's not really true. They had obviously seen each other. and uh, But anyway, so he moved to... Uh, Thailand to meet her in person and uh, they got married and uh, eventually she moved back to the United States with him so uh, they both have some experience I think being between two cultures as he was in um, Thailand trying to win over a Thai family and then uh, she had to come to the, the States and win over a white family I don't know how much winning over either one of them had to do, but um, that's just an interesting story to me, and I actually haven't heard a lot of it. I haven't heard a lot of the details, but um, they're here now, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, getting a chance to, to talk to them about that and share with you some um, funny little uh, coincidences that exist in... Um, my relationship to him and her uh just these odd things but uh 
we'll get to that in a couple weeks. So, um, but yeah, this week is uh, a uh, the episode I've been looking forward to for a while about transracial adoption and um, one of these, uh, you know, the idea of this podcast being existing between cultures, um, this one is going to be existing between, uh, you know, racial cultures, Colombian and Caucasian, and then, of course, existing between a uh, living with a birth family, no, I'm sorry, living with your adopted family and uh, not being sort of a you know, blood relative or however you would put that. Uh, so yeah, it ought to be uh, pretty interesting and uh, I've been looking forward to it for a while. So uh, without further ado, this is Ostrid Castro. This is the Transracial Adoption episode. Let's go. Okay, good morning everybody. Um this is Gino and I'm talking with uh Ostrid Castro. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. So, um so coming up November is Adoption Awareness Month and you have a an event coming up an adoptee networking event what can you yeah. tell us about that yeah so one of the things that uh we do is we i offer education and support resources and the adult adoptee community one of the things that's really vital i think in a healthy understanding of self is if you are an adopted person is to understand the history of adoption in this country or whatever country you live in and um, and then also having other peers to uh, have support with uh, around the topics that we bring up or discuss. So in November, uh, on the second, it's the second Wednesday of every month, uh, November 13th, we are going to host a adult adoptee get-together social uh, networking event here in Portland. And then I'm going to have one also in Denver, which will be a parallel conversation. uh, And that's going to be in November, on November 8th, Friday. And um, and basically what it is, is it's uh, the panel. We always have a panel discussion, and we have usually two panelists and myself. And the conversation is this month about Adoption Awareness Month. A lot of adult adoptees don't know that this month, that November is Adoption Awareness Month. And um, and so one part of this is just educating and letting folks know that it exists. And people might come up to you that do know that. And I think being informed is kind of the best comeback tool, if you will, um, is to be informed and, and know these kind of things. So if somebody says to you, oh, to, this is November is Adoption Awareness Month. Um, are you celebrating or what are you doing for the month and um, to be aware that what it is, the history of it. Uh, then there's, there are adoptees who are um, not in support of Adoption Awareness Month and then there's adoptees who are in support of Adoption Awareness Month and um, so it gives an opportunity to bring two panelists on uh, talking about this 
subject uh, that give other people who are in the audience an opportunity to hear two kind of extremes, uh, if you will, of the topic. So you have kind of guest speakers and um, you guys do food. Is it kind of like an event or is it uh, like a lecture? Uh, well, it's so I call them networking. It's a networking speaker series. So what it is is half of the time is educational speaker and learning from two panelists who have some thoughts and ideas about the topic and who are also adopted. And then the other half of the uh, event, if you will, is networking and socializing and talking with others. And um, and so. I created this out of a need in the community where um, we seem to have two levels of support in most communities, and one is therapeutic support. You go to a therapist, you go to support, a therapeutic support group, everybody goes around the room, introduces their name, tell, um, and talks about their adoption. And then the other event, if you will, that happens in a lot of communities is adoptee just networking, just getting together, let's go to, let's go have drinks, let's just go hiking together, let's just be together and do events together. And so this is kind of bringing those two uh, things, if you will, to, together and in one event. So there's socializing, networking, eating, conversing, and then there's an educational component as well. And uh, Laura is going to be a panelist this this one coming up, right? Exactly. So Laura, I've known her for a very long time, and uh, and we're good friends. And the fact that she is she holds um, so much of the adoption constellation, the adoption experience of being a first and birth mother, uh, and being an adult adoptee, and then also working in the industry and. I think that she can bring that conversation to talking about the history of uh, Adoption Awareness Month and what that means to her as a birth mother, what it means to her as an adoptee, and then also as a professional, which are all three very different categories. And um, so you um, you run um, Ostrid Castro Consulting. What, what can you tell us about, about that? Yes, so actually, you know, you're catching me right on the tail end of Ostrid Castro Consulting as I am about to launch, um, and when this, actually, when this goes live, I don't, I don't know if it will already have been launched, um, but I will be, um, launching Adoption Mosaic 2.0, if you will, uh, I'm, doing Adoption Mosaic again, where it was a nonprofit 15 years ago when I started it with uh, three other women, and this time it will not be a nonprofit. Um, it's an LLC and sole proprietor, and so I will be offering these workshops and these events as Adoption Mosaic, which is offering adoption education and support resources in the community. Uh, we're not a placement agency, so there's no part of what we do is placing children for adoption. Well, um, oh, and so the event um, is what kind of, um, so you gave us the date. Is there a, a location and a time, and is it limited to adoptees, or can anybody go to that? Yeah, great questions. Okay, so yes, there is a, um, a location. It's at Southeast Uplift, and the address is 3534 Southeast Main Street here in Portland, Oregon. 
Uh, and um, and anybody who's interested can call me for more information or go onto my uh, Facebook page, uh, which my Facebook page is currently Ostrich Castro Consulting. Uh, and in the events section, there's information about this. Uh, and so your other question was, um, so location and, oh, who all can attend? So uh, I, it's a model where it is open to adoptees are encouraged to invite their support community. So the adoptees who are registering and signing up can bring anybody in their community that they feel um, is somebody who should be in the know about this information um, or hear from other adoptees, whether it's your partner, maybe your parents, maybe uh, an extended family member, your therapist, your kid's therapist. I, it doesn't matter as long as you're the one, you as the adoptee is the one who has the ticket to invite them um, at their, uh, they can invite up to three people. So the non-adopted individual who will be, that would be attending is asked to sign a waiver of understanding. And this waiver of understanding basically just says that I understand I'm a guest in this adoptee focused space and that my primary intention is to be a listener and to learn. Uh, and so we do ask all non-adoptees to find that understanding, waiver of understanding. Is there a cost? There is. There's a $10 charge for it. Uh, and uh, it is, we provide hors d'oeuvres uh, and um, drinks and, um, and snacks and so forth. Uh, do you want me to uh, put links to this stuff in the episode yeah, description? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, that's all. Uh, okay, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty. The, the reason you are so into adoption, let's say, is because you mm-hmm. have a very uh, – uh, I don't know how to put it. Your adoption story is is out there. It's out there, yes. but it's also kind of common, right? Uh, it's unfortunately it's more common than uh, than not. If you're talking about what I've recently in the last about seven years, what I discovered about my adoption mm-hmm. um, is. Do you mean like international adoption right. or how I what how I came into care? Uh. Well, I, both of those. So, okay. um, your, your story is, uh, you were born in Colombia, right? And you have yeah. an older sister mm-hmm. and, uh, your mom left a, in a kind of an abusive relationship, right? Sort of in the middle of the night kind of deal and Correct. packed you guys in a duffel bag and uh-huh. escaped, right? Yes. And uh, this is unbelievable to me. And this is what uh, this is where I think mothers kind of have a leg up on fathers. She was cleaning restaurants and had you guys with her in in kind of the middle of the night, right? In the duffel yeah. bag, and would go out and, and check on you and go back to cleaning restaurants, right? Well, at that time, so once we were in Bucaramanga and she was cleaning restaurants, she would actually. Um, leave us under benches and she she describes uh, that she would find cardboard boxes, open them up and um, and cover us uh, as 
to try to hide us as best she could. Um, so then she would go and uh, go clean restaurants like you described, and yes, and check and have us be you know close enough by that she would check on us during her breaks, uh, and then um, during the day. So that was by night, and we were sleeping at, at night um, under these benches and under these cord cardboard boxes. Uh, granted, it is important to know that Colombia, where we were living in Bucaramanga, is very warm. I mean, the average temperature is 78 uh, to 90 degrees. Um, so even at night, it doesn't get super cold. Um, so we were sleeping there, and then uh, and then she, during the day, would uh, be with us, and we would play, I guess, just there in the park with her while she slept. Uh under the same in the same location and was there was there no relatives in the area that uh could uh watch you guys or was she sort of trying to stay under the radar because of the 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 way she left the situation right so it's important to like when we are looking back at our history and our stories and when we're trying to understand our stories and how they those stories affect who we are today um, which we're learning more and more of the importance of understanding childhood trauma. Uh, and so um, one of the things that is, I think, really critical to understand is is that in Colombia in the 70s, uh, when we were with her, and, and to, I think to some extent even today, um, but more so in the 70s, women were properties of men. And um, in the sense of if you were being abused, um, physically, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go to the authorities and uh, get a restraining order on your husband, per se. Uh, so it was what she did by taking us and removing us from our abusive father, removing herself and us. Um, she was breaking the law, and so she was terrified that if she went to the authorities or she went to anyone that they would turn her in uh, and and so she didn't seek support and in fact when she escaped our father she got put us and herself on a bus and drove us um, or she didn't the bus took us 10 hours away from any support that she had all of her family and everybody because she was afraid that even her siblings and her mother and her father would turn her in and make her go back to our abusive father and it's uh i mean we're not talking about um the dark ages here this is 40 years ago i mean that's correct uh, that's that's really hard to uh uh fathom yeah yeah so she was cleaning restaurants, and then she was able to find a a different job in a in a different city, right? Correct. So she, um, I guess, there was a friend that she befriended in Bucaramanga. Said, "Hey, um, I have this job in another town um, that you can go and uh, and wash. I think it was washing windows or something like that. Um, but they pay much better." And um, so she went. And accepted that job but she um, had there was a man who actually had said to her you need to get these girls off the street I guess he had seen uh, seen the three of us and my sister and myself and our mother on the streets and 
had given our mother some money to go find a room, and she did. She found a room in a house, and the landlord of the house, or she was living in the house as well, this other woman, um, said that she would take care of the two of us while our mother went and kind of set up shop in this other town, because this town was about 10 hours away as well, on a bus. And, uh, and so Carmenza, our birth mother, uh, headed out and went to and started this job. And um, within probably, we don't know the exact date, but probably within three to five days uh, of Carmenza leaving, we were taken to the orphanage and basically we were sold in the black market of adoption uh, at that time. Uh, do you think the friend was complicit or was the friend really looking out for her, trying to help her and, and just uh, accidentally led her into a, a pretty bad situation? Do you mean the – oh, the person who gave her the money? Yeah, and the job, found her the job. Or... Yeah, no, those – and I, my understanding is those were two different people. Um, oh, okay. So the person who had seen us on the street and gave her money um, to find a room wasn't a friend. He was just a man who had continuously watched the three of us on the street. And he literally was a stranger and said, here's some money. Go get yourself a room. Like, stop. You know, you need to get these girls off the street. Uh, and so, and what's crazy is, is that uh, I think it was seven or maybe ten years later after that incident happened, she ran into him again. Um, and she basically told him he said hey how's it going i you know and how are the girls and she then proceeded to tell him how she had lost uh us and she's you know trying to actively look for us still uh and they actually got together and that's who her that's her husband today oh wow yeah (laughs) yeah so it was just kind of a so she just happened upon the the wrong living situation Correct. Uh, Correct. So you guys, uh, so they put you in a, would, would that be an orphanage or some kind of? Yep. And, mm-hmm. and then you were, how long were you in the, the staying there? Well, because there was the corruption that was happening, we were sent to another orphanage so that if Carmenza came back to look for us, she couldn't find us. So we were taken to another orphanage with, within a very short period of time of going into care. Um, I'm going to say maybe two weeks, and uh, and got paperwork to send us to an orphanage in Bogota, which is the, a much bigger city, and um, and there we stayed about four months before uh, Norm and Chris here in the United States uh, filed for adoption and paperwork, and so we went into care in October. Um, we were taken in October. And then it, by February of the following year, so October, November, December, January, so four months, um, we were on a plane to the United States. Um, they were told you were four and six, but you guys were actually, is that right, or you guys were? No, they, um, they, so um, our mom and dad here in the United States were told that we were three and four years old, and we were actually four, I was four and a half, and my sister was six. So we were quite a bit older than we had been put than our birth certificates and then we had been, our parents had been told. 
What are your parents' names again? Norman Chris. Norman Chris. And obviously they had no idea what was happening. Correct. Correct. They were just given referral. Um, my uh, my dad had said to me it was right around Thanksgiving that they had been given um, a referral, is what it's called, and the referral of the two of us and said, here, um, here are the two girls we're hoping that the two of you will adopt, and they agreed, and then they proceeded with the paperwork. And even in the 70s, a four-month process that, like from entering into care uh, is unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from the moment we went into care to getting passports, um, Colombian passports, transferring orphanages. I mean, everything had to happen really quick because of the black market aspect of this, uh, quicker than, than most adoptions were happening back then, unless it was uh, corruption. And because of the, the, the way things were at this time, your mom couldn't go to the police, right? Correct. Correct. Because she was... She, in a sense, and you know, in this country, when I actually at the very beginning, I kind of thought about like, oh, how, um, how a woman who in this country that would never happen because she would get support and um, and so forth. Uh, sorry, the dogs. I don't. Can you hear them? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, uh, so that you know, even here, a woman here could um, could get at least could get support, and she. Um, however, at the end of the day, if a woman takes her children out across the state line without her husband or her partners or her, the children's parent father's consent, um, then there are laws against that as well. And um, and so there's ways to go about it. But because there wasn't a system in place that actually supported her, uh, that that was what terrified her, that she would just be put back into um, her, her abusive situation um and uh and not get any support and just have to be stuck with this man who was abusing all three of us uh where did you uh end up in the united states so my parents at the time lived in massachusetts in denver uh denver sorry in uh wayland massachusetts at the time uh, and so we flew to the logan airport uh, we had an escort that took us uh, and at that time, our parents were encouraged not to um, fly to Colombia because of the civil war that it was it was going through, and that it wasn't a safe place for people from the United States to go. Yeah, that's convenient. Yeah. How come uh, this is one thing I, I was unsure of? How come they wouldn't adopt someone from the United States? Was it just uh, quicker, or what? What was what was the reason? You know, you know, that's a really good question, uh, and it was one that I always had was curious about hearing and learning and figuring out, like, why didn't you just do that? There's plenty of kids that are in the States, you know, especially in the 70s. There were so many kids that were in care. Um, so my parents had planned to adopt through foster care, except uh, the problem was, was when they started the process, the county had said to them, do you have any plans on moving? Because um, this process could take a while, first of all. And second of all, um, if you start the process and then move, you'll have to restart the process all over again in the new place that you live. And so my dad knew that his job was one that 
um, that moved him around a lot. So he knew that that was not an option. And they, the two of them had been trying for quite a while to conceive and were unsuccessful in doing so. So they had been, they were just really sure about adopting a sibling group, an older sibling group, um, because they were older. And um, and then when you ask my mom, why did you adopt from Colombia? Uh, she will talk about how wonderful the country is and talk about how beautiful the people are and how wonderful the scenery, the, the landscape is and all of these things. Uh, and then if you ask my dad, he uses humor <laughs> all the time about lots of things and he was like well to be honest with you kid it was the program with the agency that we were working with that was the quickest program uh and Colombia was the quickest country that we could work with at that time and we were ready to be parents um so yeah so that's that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing in the work that I do now which is helping adults adoptees to navigate these conversations with their adoptive parents if they feel like they can uh that or they just don't know the how to go about it or the tools or language to use um, because so many of us have so many questions about where we came from who we are who we lived with before who were our caretakers was it an orphanage was it a foster home was it um my birth mother was it you know and wanting to know the answers to really important questions but not knowing how to speak those um and and fear that they're hurting their adoptive family feelings um by engaging and having these questions, these conversations. And so um, a big part of what I have done over the years is gone through those steps with my own family, with my own adoptive family, my parents, um, and really navigate and really kind of like dissected, like how did it feel? What did it feel like for me to have my parents telling me such different reasons as to why they adopted? And how old I was and what it was like to hear those two stories come from them, um, as you can imagine, was both wonderful and challenging. And I didn't feel like I really had the answer, but they were speaking their truth of the reason why they were individually choosing Colombia. Um, But it was, yeah, it's it's interesting having to navigate those thoughts and feelings about answers to questions like that. It's funny because when I first met Laura and she was telling me kind of her story, I didn't really realize it until she started talking about it. But there was actually quite a bit of adoption in my life that I hadn't really even thought of. I mean, my little brother is adopted. My oldest brother, Bill, um, my mom put him up for adoption um, when she was 18 or so, you know, young. because at the time uh, she just wasn't able to to, to take care of him, um, and then of course my dad was removed from his family in Klamath Falls and put with a white family up here in the Portland area. Um, so I, I just hadn't even put those pieces together till she started telling me her story. Um, wow! And uh, you know, and then in kind of prep preparation for this podcast even though I have this, these uh, examples of adoption in my life, I still wasn't sure how to 
word things as to like I didn't want to sound um, old school and you know use the wrong words for mm-hmm. you know what I mean and um, and not come off as ignorant. Um, right. But uh, yeah, there's I my mom uh, has talked to me about that too because she gave up. See, that's I don't know if the phrase is right. Gave up a child for adoption. I don't even know if, but uh. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's the the most common used term for for that, uh, and yet it's also when you know the history of why we use that term, um, it's really, and this is part of educating my community and my adoptee community. So most of us use the term "my mother gave me up" um, or "put me up for adoption." And, um, and so, you know, we hear more and more from women's stories uh, who had either relinquished or had their parental rights terminated. Uh, and it, it's so far from that, that simple idea of, oh, I just gave up my baby for adoption or I put up my baby for adoption. So the put up for adoption is when we look at the orphan trains back in the 40s, 50s, um, in this country, we had orphan trains that start. Do you know about those? Have you heard about those? No, I haven't. Okay, so they were trains that were putting orphaned kids on these trains on the East Coast uh, and then here in this country. And then they would, these trains filled with children um, that were, they weren't infants, but they were older children that were in a asylums is what we called them we didn't call them orphanages at the at the time and they would take because uh, there was too many children on the east coast uh over po- these asylums were overpopulated so they would put these kids on these trains start the train uh, on the east and then start going through the country and they would stop at major cities and they would put the children up on kind of like an auction pedestal if you will and they will, would auction them off uh, and that is where we get the term for I was put up for adoption. Because they were literally put up on top of... Right. Wow. Uh, that's... Yeah, I, I have never heard of that. That's yeah. probably That's one There's, they probably like to leave out of the history books, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right, right. It's not exactly. And, um, and as you can imagine, like, whether you're an adoptee who uses that term or doesn't use that term... Understanding the history of that term is, I believe, so vital, um, and um, and to be in control of your own story is um, when you have when your story is so fragmented already. Um, so that's I those are pieces of the his, of the history of adoption that I think are really important to kind of pass on to this next generation. So I will just say there is a P, um, PBS. Uh, documentary, The Orphan Trains, uh, and it is, um, I don't know if it's on Amazon, but if folks Google it and um, look for it, uh, it is, it, you get to meet some of those people who were on those trains in, in this documentary. It's really fascinating. Uh, well, yeah, and, and Laura kind of um, turned me on to the idea of uh, the importance of meeting your birth family because uh, my my older brother Bill we only reconnected with them a couple years ago and I actually had never even heard of them until I was you know in my 30s and oh, wow. uh, they just I don't know if they 
intentionally kept that from me or just, I don't know, maybe just forgot. But uh, I guess uh, they had told me that they had actually tried to connect with him and he um, rejected that connection. And my thoughts were at the time, like, well, if he doesn't want to meet us, he doesn't want to meet us. That's fine. Like, I'm not going to and I'm not sure exactly what turned it around. But, you know, having conversations with my mom, you know, she was wondering how he felt about her placing him for adoption. But and then not doing the same with my sister, even though they were a couple years apart only. Um, And I I don't know. I, I wasn't. I'm not sure I was the person she should be having that conversation with. That sounds like something she should be talking to him. Uh, But I I don't think she knows how to have that conversation. That's just uncomfortable, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, well, when we've been told our entire lives, you know, the stork story or the, you know, you were brought here by a stork or... um, not encouraged to talk or ask questions. We are, we train ourselves or society trains us that um, these are not topics that people around us are comfortable having. It brings, it stirs things up and nobody likes to um, talk about uncomfortable topics. So let's just keep this under wraps, you know? Uh, And so, yeah, learning how to talk about it is, takes practice. Absolutely. So, uh, Eventually, uh, you you grow up, and um, so, so did you get into uh, this adoption advocacy before you f- met your birth mother? Yes, yes. So when I was eighteen, uh, I sat on a panel, my first adoption panel ever, uh, and I was volunteering at an organization, the Rocky Mountain Adoption Exchange, and I. They asked if I would be a panelist, and at that time there weren't very many adoptees that were panelists or talking publicly about their experience. There just weren't as many. And so there was a panel of all adoptive parents, and then I was the, <laughs> the token adoptee, if you will. And I held, I held that status, being the token adoptee on panels, whenever I could, because uh, I realized how healing it was for me to be able to share some of my experiences as being a transracial adoptee and uh, with my sister and international adoptee as well, being older and some of the struggles that I had had in adolescence that may or may not have been attributed to the fact that I had been adopted at an older age and, um, and we're a different race than our mother and father and our family and community and so forth. So getting to sit on panels and talk to other prospective adoptive parents at that time, that was who I was talking to, were prospective adoptive parents, felt like I was making a change in a direction for these parents that, okay, well, at least they heard my story. At least they aren't going to hopefully they won't racially isolate this child the way my sister and I were. Um, because I didn't have this term at the time, right? Um, but I had the idea and the notion and the thoughts and the feelings that came with that notion of racial isolation and the damaging aspect of what that can be for a child. So I could talk about those things and people, these prospective adoptive parents were 
sitting on their edge of their seats going, oh, this is so valuable hearing from somebody who has this lived experience. Uh, and that is what launched my career. I was like, oh, I guess this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Right. And, and um, so then this this part of the story I really love. So then you were actually vac- vacationing in Colombia, right? And no, this was years and years later after I had already started an organization called Adoption Mosaic, the first round, um, and had been working twenty some years in the industry. And had yeah. you had you tried to 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 find your birth mom? Up until I had, yeah, I had. So I was the sibling of the two of us, my sister and I. Uh, I was the one who always my entire life wanted to meet and find our birth mother and my sister was she was like well good luck with that I don't want any part of that uh and I I'm happy I have my closure she had gone to Colombia and worked there uh did an um kind of an exchange student thing if you will her she deferred a college year um and went and worked in the orphanage that we came from the second orphanage that we came from in Bogota and uh worked there for a year learned Spanish and she was I think 17 18 at the time when she did that and then she that was her process and she was done she was like no I don't want to do anything more around my adoption I did what was right for me and if you want to search for our birth mother, um, we had been told that we were biological siblings. We had no reason to believe that we weren't, and we are. Um, but uh, so me searching and looking for my birth mother was a 15-year process uh, where I would put my big toe in it, try it out, try to look, um, call the adoption uh, or the orphanage and the adoption agency in, in Massachusetts and just digging around and seeing if I could find some information. And I kept coming into dead ends until, but I think where you're uh, read in the article, um, my seven years ago, my daughter, uh, and I was then married to my husband, her dad, uh, we had every year every other year we traveled to Colombia to just play on the beach hang out I didn't I wanted my uh, my daughter or any of my kids to not experience the feeling like a visitor or like a tourist every time she went to Colombia I wanted her to feel a part of Colombia because she was half Colombian she's half Italian she was going to a Spanish immersion school, so it was perfect that every other year we would, around the holidays, we would go and hang out on the beach and play uh, and just hang out and have her hear Spanish and so forth. So there, then seven years ago, she said, um, I, Mama, I really want to go to the town that you were born in, uh, and she was eight at, at the time, and I was like, we thought that I had been born in um, Bucaramanga because this was before we found Carmenza. And so I said, well, um, I, you know, it's in the mountains. I don't, yeah, we don't want to go there. Let's just go to the beach. And she said, no, no, I really want to see. I don't care if it's in the mountains. I don't care if it's not as fun. I really want to see where you were born. And Paolo, her dad, said, yeah, actually, we never have been there. Let's go there. And I agreed. And in agreeing, I 
grabbed my original passport picture of when my, uh, my sister and I had first left Colombia in 75. Um, I had these black and white pictures of our original passport, uh, pictures of each of us. And so I took it and very, the, the article that you, that I'd sent you, Gino, is, is the long version, but the short version is, um, we basically, when we got there, we ended up the last kind of resort of trying to maybe do find somebody or do a search, and that had not been the intention at the beginning of this trip. Um, but we decided, well, let's see if we just poke around, maybe we could find something. Uh, so we went to the last ditch effort was we went to the newspaper and a friend was with us. We had befriended this wonderful man who was a retired social worker. And we went to, uh, I had said, oh, I have this idea of going to the newspaper and maybe just getting a classified ad. We have that in the States. Uh, and he said, oh, what a brilliant idea. Let's go there. And I will help you navigate this talking with the newspaper and so forth. And he did. Uh, they ended up writing a full article. It was a Friday Friday night. They wrote a full article about me being in Bucaramanga searching for my roots. And they put in these two pictures of my sister uh, and myself when we first left Colombia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, oh, this is going to go to print on Monday. So... Um, you know, I'm sure, and I was thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm sure we're not going to hear anything. We're getting on a plane on Tuesday, you know, Wednesday or Thursday that week. So I was like, oh, I'm sure that'll be fine. And, and there's a contact information on there. And I'm sure when I get back to the States, if we're lucky, we'll hear from somebody um, over, you know, the months or years or whatever. So Monday morning hits 10 o'clock, by 10 o'clock, four women had called in and said, these are my girls um and and of course we don't have four birth mothers um (laughs) we only had one and um so our friend fortunately uh they he took the call we didn't even know that they were calling in and he knew enough of my story that he could kind of filter through and say okay well actually the age of what you're describing doesn't match these girls so i i wish you the best i i don't think that these are your girls um so the the one woman one of the four women ended up being our birth mother and we did do a dna test uh and that is something that isn't super popular to hear or to talk about in in the world of adoption and search and reunion and so forth is the importance of doing a DNA test um, to have that certificate or have that proof that yes, this, this is my birth family. I have unfortunately heard of stories where there was a connection, there was an understanding from both parties, from the adoptee uh, and from the birth family side that this was an actual reunion, that it wasn't corruption, it wasn't anybody who was trying to pretend that they were. They honestly, genuinely were like, oh, we found each other. Then years later decided to do a DNA just for fun and then found out that they were not actually related at all. Um, And the years that they had spent building a relationship became really complex and really confusing and really hard 
Uh, and so I encourage, and a lot of people will say, oh, but I don't need to do a DNA test. Come here, let me show you the picture. We look exactly the same. Uh, and that often happens when we have spent our entire life living with people that don't look like us, that it is so common for us to see maybe other, like I grew up my whole life seeing other Latinx individuals, adults, uh, that I was like, oh, I wonder if we're related. I'm not used to looking at people who look like me. And um, so I, my, we ended up getting a DNA test with Carmenza immediately, like within two days of meeting her. Uh, and fortunately, she was the one who suggested it and said, yes, I absolutely want a DNA test because I've spent the last 32, 36 years looking for my girls, and I have no interest in building a relationship with somebody who's not. Uh, and so I loved that she had that attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we did, and um, and the results came back that we, we were. And sure, when people look at her, pictures of her and pictures of me, they're like, Astrid, you didn't have to waste that money. Uh, she looks exactly like you. Uh, and boy, is it nice to know. And it's also as bad as it is when I have other, I have people doubting that she's my birth mother all the time, uh, which is really interesting, whether it's adoptive parents or adoptees who are like, well, how do you know that she really is? And I can say, oh, we, we got a DNA test. Oh, okay. And then the conversation stops or the interrogation stops um, because there's nothing worse than being asked by your community that are your supportive community to say, do you ever wonder if she really is or isn't or that doubt because you yeah. lived with that doubt your whole life. Right. And so having the people who are the closest to you carry that doubt is really challenging. It's really hard. Uh, so getting the DNA test also eliminates that. Um, yeah. People don't, don't question that. Right. And so you placed the, the article Monday, and how how soon after did you meet her? No, no, no. We placed the article on Friday. Oh, it, it went to print went on to Monday, print Monday morning yeah. at 10. Yep, and we were in the car and drove there and met her in person um, by, I want to say it was 12.30 that afternoon. The same day. The same day, hours oh, after finding her, so, after her calling in. Yeah. Did you uh, when you when you saw her? Would, did you immediately have a f like a gut feeling like this is the one, or was it what what was that moment like? That had to be uh, hard. right. That, that's it's a, that's such a good, great question because if you had asked me before I found her, how do you think you're going to react? I would have told you something very different than what actually ended up happening. Uh, so, yeah, so when I saw her, she was sitting on her porch, her and her husband and her little sister. So we have a little sister who she raised, she parented. Um, and they were all on the porch, on their porch outside of their front door. And when we pulled up, Ignacio, our friend who was driving us and helping us out with the search, said, oh my God, Ostrid, there you are. Look at that. That's clearly your mother. Wow. And um, and when I saw her, I just stared at her and I was like, I, d I don't see it. 
and really? Paolo, uh, Maya's dad, and everybody around us were like, what? what do you mean you don't see it? And I was like, I just don't see it. Do you really think it's her? Like, I'm going to wait for the DNA test before I get too right. emotionally caught up in all of this. So, I, yeah, I was definitely protecting this emotional, like, you know, in case it's not her, I really don't. Right. I really don't want to get too caught up. And how, and how did she react when she saw you? So that was really hard for me. Um, she, it like, grabbed me in a very loving way, hugged me, and then started wailing. And she was wailing like, okay, so when I, the only way I can describe it is, is when you are watching an old school Italian movie and these Italian women are like launching their bodies over a coffin because somebody had just died. It's like that, there's a word for it, but I can't, I can never remember. It's this wailing noise of this yeah. cry and, and this wailing of like sadness. Um, and she was doing that in my ear and, um, and speaking Spanish. And at that time I didn't speak Spanish. So all I heard was this woman just making, you know, wailing and crying and, um, and I did understand some, a couple of words, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then we had the translator that was helping us. I speak fluent Italian, so that was helping me with the Spanish a little bit, uh-huh. but I, not enough that I could con- stay with the flow of the conversation. Uh, and it was really, really hard to be part of hearing somebody's, like, grief and pain that close right. to... Yeah, just that close to you and knowing that you were a part of that. So she was picking up where she left off. She was, she saw me and she is like, we were, I was four and a half when the last time she saw me, she remembers how, what I look like, how I was, all of these things. And so for her, she was picking up where she left off. For me, I don't have memories of her physical existence, um, her being physical beingness if you will so I was literally hugging it was like describe it as like an intimate stranger yeah um it was hard that's a very uh that's a complex dynamic too between the two of you when you're kind of guarded and she's kind of letting it all hang out and and she must have been pretty certain at that point um and had she had she had had any kind of close calls like you, like like you said, a couple women had called thinking you guys might be. Uh, then right. Had she had other incidents where she thought maybe she found you guys and it it ended up not being true? No, no. She um, she had hired private investigators in those thirty six years uh, that she was looking for us, but she didn't ever get that. She didn't ever have that experience of feeling like she was close. I don't know if you've had this conversation with her. Had she at any point kind of just given up on the idea of finding you guys? No, never, never. And she's very clear. So to the point where, so in this reunion and in this, the discovery uh, process of, of this reunion, I learned quite a bit of information and in one as, as you had mentioned, our birthdays are not our birthdays. Uh, to another one was that we were not born in Bucaramanga, which is what our passports and whatever what all of our documentation says we were. Uh, we were actually born in Bogota, 
Uh, and um, But I, my entire life I've said that I am from Bucaramanga. And it's also much funner to say <laughs> like when you're word. a kid. Like the only people who know how to say that that city are people who have either been there or lived there or are from there. So um, anyway, so we found out we found this information out, and in finding this out, it turns out that her husband had said the man who had met us on the street, all of us, um, years earlier had said to her after they got married, like, we both have more family in Bogota that can support us. We need to move to Bogota and we can get jobs there. And she said, absolutely not. This is where I lost my girls and I'm not moving until they come back and find me or I find them. Because uh, wow. this is the only place they know where to go and look. Um, so that's why she ended up, they, they ended up staying in Bucaramanga. Well, that's uh, this is what I was mentioning earlier about, uh, you know, she was working nights and taking care of you guys and, you know, not not to try and knock dads at all. But I mean, that's really kind of a mother's love kind of thing. And and her sticking in that town and, and just holding out hope that one day she would be uh, reunited with her girls. I mean, that's really mother's right. love, I think. And uh, yeah. I'm not saying that that guys wouldn't or don't do the same. I just, maybe you don't hear about it as often. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I don't, I don't know. Like, I think I, I have a couple of single dad men in my life that I know who, um, yeah, that maybe in that single parent role, uh, for dads, I've seen maybe more of that, but yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that she was, so persistent on that, you know, she would work and save money. And when she had enough money to hire uh, a somebody who would help search, because there were quite a bit of people at that time who uh, were searchers of people. Um, that was like a thing because in the 70s, there was a lot of kidnapping that was happening in the government. Uh, and so the, it was kidnapping um, like for ransom uh, and for, you know, for the drug lords and the, and what was going on, the civil war that was going on. So there was a lot of kidnapping. So that's what she thought that had happened. So uh, She thought we were still in Colombia. So she was hiring searchers to help find us there in Colombia. She didn't know that we had gone to the States. Um, so were you in contact with your sister throughout the day as this is uh, kind of unfolding or did you kind of wait for everything to um, finalize? Yeah. No, so we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. Um, and the only, or we had cell phones, but the only times they worked were when we were in our hotel and we had Wi-Fi. So, um, and I didn't want to call my sister and tell her I thought that I had found her birth mother. I wanted to call and tell her that I am pretty sure that I found her uh, and that I've met her personally, physically. And so um, I called Mia that night. She was the first person that I called when I got back to the hotel. And um, yeah, I called her and I said, Mia, I... I think I found her birth mother and she said what like she, she had no idea I was even 
she knew I was going to Colombia, but she thought I was just going on a family trip, just like I did. Uh, and she had no idea that I was going to be trying to, and I didn't know I was going to be trying um, to look, but it, yeah. So for her, it was, it was a pretty big shock. Um, and, uh, your adoptive parents were supportive of, were they always supportive of you trying to find her, your birth mother? Yes. Um, yes, I will say they were supportive in an old school, supportive kind of fashion, <laughs> if that makes sense. So they were supportive in telling us our whole life, uh, if you ever want to search for your birth family, we would fully support you. Always telling us that verbally, um, or we would, um, or of course you you might be thinking about your birth family. If you ever are your birth mother um, and you want to talk about it, you can talk to me about it. So they had they were attempting to be open and attempting to give us space to talk about it and say we could. But one of the things I do in my adoptive parent training now is. I have a whole curriculum on how do you talk to your children about adoption. And one of the things is, is it is not your child's responsibility to come to you, to talk to you about their birth mother and to have the language and the skills and understanding. Because if they haven't been taught that language or they haven't seen it in action, been taught through example, there's no way they're going to know how to do that. It's not a natural instinct um, mm. on how to do that. So you have to be in an environment that encourages that more than just telling your kid, oh, well, I, I grew up my whole life hearing I could talk about it if I wanted to. Um, and I wanted to, but my sister and I didn't have the tools. We didn't even know how to talk to each other. Like my sister and I almost never talked about adoption to each other. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so how often do you talk to your birth mom now? Uh, here's where the guilty daughter syndrome comes in. Um, so I try to talk to her at least once a month. Uh, she would like it if I called every week. Well, she would like it if I called every day, but, um, yeah, I think she, everybody's mom is like that. <laughs> What's that? I said, I think everybody's mom is like that. I think we're all kind of <laughs> right. guilty of that. Um, yeah, so she, yeah, so she um, is hoping, like, now that I'm doing this interview, I did call her last weekend, and I'm trying to get in the habit of calling her every Sunday. Uh, it's it's challenging. My Spanish, I speak like a five-year-old, uh, and with my Spanish, so I'm not super comfortable uh, with my Spanish. I went down there this summer and spent a month there and I for two weeks every single day I had a tutor that was helped by private tutor um, which was very inexpensive and um, I definitely will go and do that again because uh, it helped my Spanish tremendously but it's challenging because I don't speak Spanish fluently and I, ha I want to have deep in-depth conversations with her but I don't know how right um well, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here and uh, just kind of talk about what it was like, you know, being Colombian, growing up with this white family, um, were you in kind of a white neighborhood and uh, just kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, so 
what did uh, your parents' family, kind of extended family, think about them adopting from Colombia? That's a really that's a really good question. If you and there's there's the story that's told to us. There's the emotions and feelings that we feel, and then there's the stories that we hear as now as we are adults. So it's like kind of when you ask, when people ask me that question, if you had asked me when I was 15, it's very different than uh, today how I would describe that. So. I think that the extended family was really happy for our parents for getting to finally be parents, uh, that this was a, a means to an end with regard to um, they, their primary focus and goal was to experience parenthood. It wasn't to adopt children of color. It wasn't to adopt children who didn't speak their language. It wasn't to... Um, adopt a, I mean, a secondary, it was to let's go to a country that um, my mother describes and says that they decided on Colombia because uh, there was also a lot of children that were in care and um, they wanted to keep sibling group together and that that was kind of conscious in her head at the time, I guess, uh, that so hearing all of that, that she had some awareness and consciousness around these aspects of, of adopting children outside of, uh, outside of the U.S. In, from a, a developing country that had experienced some poverty and so forth. So I think that the family structure, if you will, at the time, their extended family, their parents and aunts and uncles, our aunts and uncles and so forth, were excited for them for that. They weren't, I don't think that anybody was really conscious in the fact that we were, with a couple of exceptions, uh, that have some very strong opinions about race in this country. Uh, And so old school uh, thoughts and ideas. And so um, it's a really interesting question because I don't think there was any consciousness around adopting kids who were of a different race and of a different culture. And there, there wasn't, that wasn't a, a big part of the thinking process for anybody that was involved. Well, like in, uh, in my case, growing up, um, you know, I'm with biological family, but I'm the only native in the family. And uh, so for me, learning about Native culture, I kind of had to, to figure that out on my own. And uh, a lot of it, a lot of the information I got was, you know, from Westerns, which are not a great representation of Native American culture. So uh, how were you able to connect to uh, your Colombian heritage and culture? So I'm... Uh, Unfortunately, we were raised in complete racial isolation, uh, and that was not something that we experienced. My sister and I experienced uh, until uh, we were either, well, when we became adults, I think both of us then started having some people in our lives that were uh, of the Spanish, uh, Latino, uh, Latinx communities. But before, um, when we were in high school, there was, so when we were in high school in the 80s, the mid to late 80s, uh, 
in Massachusetts, in the suburbs that we were living in, they were busing out. There was the busing program, so they were busing the inner city kids of Boston all the way out to Sudbury, where we were living in the town that we were living in. So it wasn't until we moved and lived there that we actually saw a community of POC, of people of color. However, they were there. There were not any Latinos, uh, and as you can hear, I'm I'm switching my language within the Latinx and Latino and Latina communities because it's it's a term that I'm practicing. So bear with me as I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> as I'm doing that. That is that experience is the only experience that we had with being in relationship, direct relationship with anybody, any people of color. Um, They were the African-American kids that were bussed out from the city. Uh, And I immediately became very, I felt very comfortable in uh, the community that of other POCs. And, um, and so I started going into the city and those were my closest friends were the kids that were, had been, were living in the city and coming out during the day for school. Yeah. I'm always drawn to, uh, other POCs and, and there's either something, I don't know if it's, it's, it's unspoken and sometimes it's outright spoken, but there's a, uh, understanding there. Like, uh, there was a guy at work, uh, he's not there anymore, but I kind of, he was kind of walking by and he looked sort of like I do sort of vaguely native and he was walking by and I kind of went, Hey, are you, uh, and he goes, yeah, are you? And I was like, yeah. And and then he kind of went, you know, kind of like a sigh, like, and he's like, we'll talk, we'll talk. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Like, and you know, there's this kind of, Uh you know, there's just like a connection I think that, uh, that we have, um, so did uh, th- did you have any uh, kind of racially charged incidents as a as a child coming up? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I more than I could even count, more than I would even be willing to. Like, yeah, we'd have to have another four hours. We um, because we lived, we also lived in um, the south and outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in the late seventies. Uh, in a suburb, and um, that was, and then we also lived outside of Portland, Maine, uh, and in the early 80s, and then in the late 80s, we moved back to Massachusetts. So um, all of these areas that we lived in were suburbs of the big cities, and they were far enough out that we very rarely went into the big cities, maybe, you know, once or twice or a couple times a year. But living, uh, I would say the the worst two were living in outside in Dunwoody, Georgia, and then also living in the 70s and then living in outside of Portland, Maine and uh, Wyndham, Maine, um, were the two hardest places to be because of the racial charge uh, that existed for my sister and I. I was the kid who I would outwardly express my anger. My sister would internally uh, internalize it or just keep it in, into uh, herself. She wouldn't. Um, she didn't act out. She was a good student. She, um, but it just you know that those things built up in her 
internally. And for me, I was always getting in trouble, getting into fights, um, sticking up for myself and my sister because um, my sister, she was the older one of the two of us, and but she was smaller in statue, and so she hated the fact that I would take that stance and be like, people can't talk to us like that. And I would, and she would say, I can fight my own battles. You need, and so my life, my adolescence was constantly in this existence of feeling like I was always in fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Did you talk to your parents about these kind of things happening? And then what, what was their reaction? Yeah. So, uh, I, remember coming home when when we were living in Atlanta um, my sister and I took the bus into school and my sister there was a little boy that my sister wanted to sit next to on the bus because she liked him and he liked her and um, and so they sat on the bus and then another kid said oh you can't um, you can't sit next to each other because salt and pepper don't match and um, and I got really mad and my sister started crying and um, and so then I got into a fight, got kicked off the bus and, um, and my, my mom was at home. She was a stay at home mom. And, uh, and she was like, when your dad comes home, we're going to have a convert. We're going to talk about this. Um, you don't get to hit people. You don't get to use physical. I don't care what they said to you. That's not okay. That's not how we deal with conflict in the family. And, um, and so when my dad got home, we should I had to tell him what had happened and he looked at me dinner table straight in my face and he was like well kid the last I checked salt and pepper go on everything <laughs> and that's just great <laughs> and I remember looking at him and being like uh okay I didn't know if I was in trouble or what and that was it that was the end of it wow. and and that that one experience and then maybe a couple of others that trick that trickle in um that those experiences were the foundation if you will on whether i could or couldn't talk to my parents about race and the things that we were experiencing at school and on the playground and what things things that people were saying to me um so i shut down uh i knew that they didn't know how to support me, uh, that their way of supporting me was brush it off, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're strong, you deserve um, to not be talked to like that, but you can't fight, you can't physic get into physical fights, that's not okay. So that, that was it. That was the extent of our conversation at home. And, yeah, and that's not really, uh, funny as it is, it's not really expressing an understanding or... Uh... Uh, empathy really even so yeah so right. how how could you go to them if uh if they didn't uh it would be hard for them to to understand your situation having never been in it right right exactly so uh, you know a big part of what i do now around education and talking with families about race and racism and how to how to deal with it uh how to um confront it how to address it, how to uh, help your children feel that they, uh, that your, you and your home and the people who are connected, who are close to them, that they can talk to, these are the, these are the safe people they can, they can talk to and, and how do we teach 
through example? How do we create, how do we use that exact same scenario and how could we do it differently? And so playing, role playing and playing that out um, for families is really, I think, very beneficial to uh, helping them say, okay, well, at the end of the day, transracial adoption is still happening. Uh, and well, I believe will probably continue to always happen. And so how do we teach parents on what their actual responsibility is to help this child navigate uh, a very racialized world that we live in? The theme of this podcast, you know, it's called Native as I Can Be Between Two Cultures. And I think mm. uh, being adopted and being transracially adopted is definitely uh, between multiple cultures and, and I'm always wanting to explore because uh, this was always my thing too growing up being a native living with a white family is trying to sort of exist between these two culture uh, between these two cultures or in one or the other at various times and I um, so that's why this story I was definitely drawn to it so um, uh, would you recommend transracial adoption? Do you, or do you you say it's fine, but this is what you kind of need to to know and be ready for? Mm. <laughs> um, that's a really good question, and I'm I'm chuckling because it's so complex, mm-hmm. uh, and the answer to that is like self awareness, self knowledge. Uh, having an understanding of self with regard to our racialized communities that we live in, understanding what your place is and how you navigate the world uh, with a racial lens on has to be something that you're comfortable with, I think, uh, that if you are going to help a child navigate this existence, right, of, of being looking one way and being raised in a community at another. Some would argue, like, absolutely, you should like, never raise a child in an isolated uh, situation. And I am, the more I'm moving in the direction of the kind of education and being able to say to families before they adopt, here's what you're signing up for, here's what I think that you're signing up for, and being, if you will, sometimes even brutally honest in those situations where they might, as a result, feel like they are being talked out of it or steered toward a different direction, if you will, um, away from transracial adoption, because if you know, if you've educated yourself around what transracial adoption means and and you say, yes, I am willing to do these things um, in the best interest of the child, my child, then at the end of the day, I know the system is not recruiting enough POC families to take bring children in um, from the foster care system for um, other countries from anywhere. I know that we don't have enough um, POC families that are being recruited on a systematic level. And so therefore, 
it's really hard to answer that question. Do I, am I a supporter of transracial adoption or not? At the end of the day, that kind of question is one that really questions my existence as who I am as a person, um, because without transracial adoption, I would like not exist, right? In the Mm -hmm. capacity that I exist today, I would be a very different person. Uh, And so it's almost impossible for me to answer that question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty loaded question for sure. And it's, it's, there's probably not just a yes or no uh, answer to it. Well, uh, We've gone quite a bit of time. Um, I, I thank you for for coming on. Is there is there anything else you you would like to add to this conversation? I no. Uh, other than just thank you, Gino, for inviting me. And I think that there are a lot of parallels that we can borrow from our experiences. Um, and just because you're not, you don't have this direct experience of being transracially adopted, like navigating these spaces of. Um, other folks in the world and how whether how race has affected their lives uh, is one that I have gained a tremendous amount of knowledge for myself and who I am and so your willingness to bring me on to this podcast and not only that but also share your experience with others um, is invaluable and I just super appreciate you including me on the on that absolutely um Real quick, do you want to uh, mention um, where we can find you online and um, uh, yes. just kind of plug your stuff again real quick? Absolutely. So I am currently, you can find me at Oster Castro Consulting. And in the month of November, I will be transitioning to Adoption Mosaic. So both are .com. Uh, and um, Ostrid Castro Consulting, my first name, my last name, and the word consulting. Uh, and then on Instagram, it's dripping with adoption because somehow my life seems to be dripping with adoption um, with my work and what I do and so forth. So I encourage you. And then on Facebook, it's just Ostrid Castro Consulting. And so I launch, relaunch Adoption Mosaic. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, thanks for being on the show. Everybody uh, go check out her uh, her sites and her Instagram. Um, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Dino. Bye.